This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Now this is week four in our series about what it means and what it looks like to be a gospel people. And our topic today is unity. And if there was ever a list of most important topics for a church to consider, this would have to be near the top. Unity. Biblical unity. Christian unity. Church unity doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on everything. In fact, we don't have to agree on a great many things. We just need to agree on a single great thing and decide together that that one thing is going to define us and it's going to set us apart and it will bind us together. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning with our time. I'm going to say that God, who has eternally existed in a perfect unity within his triune nature, has bound us to himself Then he has has held out a gift to us, and that gift is to be brought together in the church in a kind of union that you won't find anywhere else in this world because the unity that we have here is not of this world. You will not find it in the world's systems. You will not find it in the world's structures. The kind of unity we're meant to have in here is from a better world. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be. And I want you to read this for yourselves. I want you to put your eyes on this because in addition to being a a gospel people, we're a Bible people. If you kind of break down this time, the worship gathering, you'll find very quickly that we give the most amount of that time together in our weekly family gathering to what we're doing right here, to open God's word, to look at what it says, and to ask him to speak to us through it. We call it joyful obedience to his word. We don't want to begrudgingly obey. We want to joyfully obey his word. And so we kind of want this to be a sort of a meal that nourishes us, that strengthens us, that gives us energy. I don't know what your family does when you get together, but mine eats. So when the family gets together, we eat. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We'll stop there. So we're going to move through these words in a very simple way this morning. First, there's one God. Verse 4, 
There's one spirit, verse 5, there's one Lord. So there's one God. Second, there's one way to be saved. Again, in verse 4, there's one hope, and verse 5 says there's one faith. So there's one way to be saved. And third, because there's one God, and he has made one way to be saved, there is one saved people. Again, in verse 4, there's one body. In verse 5, it says there's one baptism. Baptism is the symbol of our entrance into the body. And that's how we see our unity here. Just three simple ones. One God, one salvation, one body of saved. So first, though, before we get into those ones, look at how the Apostle Paul begins this, and we ask the question, what will unity require? So Paul, the apostle called by Christ, writes this letter in 62 AD. And he writes it while he's in prison, sort of under a house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before the Roman emperor. He could have bailed out on the trial process long before this, but he presses on with asking for a higher and higher authority, which was his right as a Roman citizen, because he wants to go to Rome. And he recognizes this is the only way he's going to be delivered there. And he wants to go before the Roman emperor because he wants to preach the gospel to the very heart of Roman power. So he's awaiting trial, and he writes this letter. It's at least the third time that we know about that he's been in jail because of his faith in Christ. And so what Paul does often, actually, is he appeals to his imprisonments as a a sort of badge of authenticity of how he can write as one with Christian authority. And so he, he kind of says, I can speak as one with authority here. First, he'll often say, because Jesus called me personally to do this. But second, you can know that I'm genuine. Look at the lengths that I'm willing to go to for this. I'm willing to endure Beatings. I'm willing to endure imprisonments. I'm willing to endure all that this has brought, all the pain and discomfort that this has brought to me for the sake of Christ. So you can know that what I say is of genuine concern for you. The world is filled today. They make the news all the time. You can see the people who have gotten rich off the preaching of the gospel, that have abused others in the name of the preaching of the gospel. Paul didn't get wealthy from preaching. He was poor. He didn't live lavishly lavishly because of his gospel preaching. It's actually the opposite of him. And he says, that's what gives me this credibility to say the things that I can say because you cannot accuse the apostle Paul of hypocrisy. He believed what he believed and he did what he taught all the way to the end. And so he begins, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, the calling of, that you have received. So what calling? Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What, what calling? There's two parts. First, Christians are called out of something old. And second, Christians are called in to something new. Out of something old, into something new. In, in John 17, 14... Jesus says that when we've been given the word of God, which means we have confessed that we are sinful, we've turned away from that sin, we believe that Jesus bore the punishment for all of our sins, 
That's what Jesus means when he says, when you've been given the word of God or you've received the word of God, we're called out of the world. The reason we think of it as being called out of the world is because through the gospel and when we are saved, our allegiances are transferred and our longings should be transformed. It's no longer the things of this world that are ultimately appealing to us. We long for the kingdom of God to come, not to be thought highly of in the kingdom of this world presently. And so, as a Christian, you should look around and not feel quite at home. Because although this is the place we are now, it's the place that we've been called out of. And now we're being ushered into something that is better in every way, almost beyond comparison. It hasn't been fully manifest yet, but it will be. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of beauty and peace. This kingdom, this world is marked by uncertainty often chaos, the world to come makes things whole and everyone there will finally be at rest. Called out of one place into something better. That kingdom is is so different from the world that you and, and I live in now. Here people grab for power and strength is defined by might primarily people look out for themselves in this world and it's not that way in the kingdom of God and that's why Paul says walk worthy of what you are being called into and the way you walk worthy is to do everything almost the opposite of the way that this world does it so he says be humble Be gentle, patient, and loving. And make your goal to keep unity through peace. If we're going to walk in this new calling, we're not just going to have to to learn a new way of living. We're going to have to unlearn much of what we have been immersed in our whole lives. Christian unity is born not in strength and power, but in humility and forgiveness and generosity. And for much of us, that requires unlearning so many patterns. And if that's going to be the nature of our gathering, and if we're going to be a unified people here, then the first thing we have to do is admit But that kind of unity isn't just going to naturally rise up from among us. We also have to define exactly what it is that we're doing here. So we're seeking a unity beyond this world. So so none of the world's systems, none of the world's definitions are going to quite fit that just right. They're not going to be able to define it. So you can look around the world and you can find ethnically unified groups. You can find socially unified 
groups. You can find politically unified groups. You can find vocationally unified groups. Because those are things our world understands. Our world understands people who are from the same places, look the same way, believe the same things, have the same kinds of professions and jobs. We can understand those kinds of people hanging around together. What the world has no categories for are people who have none of those things that usually define us in common, getting together, and not just liking being together, but feeling more at home and more at peace and more at rest and more whole when we're with that group than somebody that we might look like on the outside or somebody we went to school with and we kind of have the same job. All those other things, they're too low. It's too low to just say, I just want to settle for people who are just a lot like me. Imagine just for a second, just kind of picture this. It might be a little bit more familiar, but imagine just getting together and all of us were pretty much the same. Kind of thought, well, kind of look like me, talk like me, from the same place, have the same interests, hobbies, all that kind of thing. It might be pleasant for a short time, but don't you think it wouldn't take us too long to look around and go, you know, it seems the, the good Lord has populated this planet with people vastly different from us. And if we really want to be his people, might we be selling ourselves and settling way short of the creativity and the glory and the beauty of God if we're just all like each other here and we're not like any of the other billions of people that he has put in this world? And so I think there is a better way. I know there's a better kingdom, and I think there's a better kind of unity. So let's now look at where true unity originates, and then I want to work toward an expression of that unity here, and I want to tell you a story. So Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and then he gives us the reason that's possible. So your Bible probably capitalizes the word spirit. That's not only because it's a specific spirit, like a proper name, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. From the very first words of the Bible, there is revealed one true God. And he sets himself out as a perfect union. Very first pages of, <coughs> of Scripture, there is a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We call this the Godhead. The pages of Scripture reveal that each member of the Godhead is fully God. Each has eternally existed. And together, the Godhead has had unending, uninterrupted, eternal fellowship. We would use words familiar to us like fulfilled and joyful, even happy. God has, within himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, been eternally happy. And if you've ever wondered why the world exists at all, the answer starts with the eternal happiness of God. You are here. All of this is here 
Because God in his unending joy decided to share joy broadly. And so he created the world. He creates people in his image. And like him, he creates us to be united together. If you read the retelling of the creation account in Genesis 2, the first man and the first woman become husband and wife, and it says that when they are united in marriage, they become one flesh. And if you know the story of the Bible, you know that tragically that one flesh union doesn't last very long. Just a, a very few verses later, the man and the woman, uh, what they do is they believe a lie about the character of God. We call this the fall, they fall into sin. And so the union that they enjoyed, we actually see it in the second, third page of Scripture, is broken because what the woman does is the woman believes the lie and misleads the man, and the man blames the woman for his own part and his own actions. So she leads him astray, he gets angry and blames her. And from there, it goes bad to worse. One of the first children murders his brother. People become increasingly distant from God, believing in the idol of self-reliance. And the main problem of all of this is that man's union with God has been severed. There's a whole lot of Bible in there. Most of the Old Testament. And we learn the whole time, testifies to it the whole time, that God is loving and he's patient and he's rich in mercy. And so he promises to make this right. It's actually in Genesis 3. He promises to make it right. And he does. So in order to rebind the connection between him and people created in his image, God the Son becomes a man. He becomes a man so that he could stand in the place of men and women. He could take the punishment for self-reliance self-authenticated life that we try to perpetuate. The punishment for that kind of sin is death. But God the Son is able to take that death upon himself because he is a man himself. And he can return to anyone who asks for it in place of death, life. And all of this is based on a connection, based on being united with God. So listen to Romans 6.5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that's we and Jesus, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this brings us to the second union we're meant to see in Ephesians 4. So there's one God eternally united within himself, desires eternal union with those he has created. Second union. There's only one way to be reunited with God. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, earlier in this letter, says that that was the plan of God from even before the fall. It says at the right time, God would send his son, and now whoever comes to the son will be sealed up. Great picture. Sealed up with God for all of eternity. And so Paul means in verse 4 when he writes, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
every person is perishing and must be rescued. And God has made one way to be saved. You must be united to Jesus Christ. And you can be. Anyone can be by faith. Repent and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. So that's the second. There's one way to be saved. Last one. There's one body. So first and foremost, there is only one church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's called the church universal. Its membership is all believers throughout all time from every part of the world. Its earliest members were Israelites who would never hear about this Jesus of Nazareth while they lived on earth, but God gave them a promise of redemption. God gave them a promise of Messiah, a Messiah to come, and they believed him. And it says even in parts of Genesis, their faith was credited to them as righteousness. And so for thousands of years, that's how God was creating a people, by faith. And then it says, at the right time, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who was this Messiah, did come. Most people rejected him, but a few believed and a movement was started. And the people who believed in the resurrection of Jesus, again by faith, people have always been saved by faith. They've always been added to the church by faith. That movement grew, and now we believe that there are millions upon millions who are part of this church universal. And we're all united. Most of us will never meet. Most of us will never have any of the same experiences. Most of us will live vastly different lives at different points in time. But we're all united by one thing. Christ. He's our Lord. He's our head. And our united purpose is to proclaim his greatness. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it must be this way. You must join the church in proclaiming the greatness of Christ. The Bible says that every person will face a day of judgment. If you plead the blood of Christ and if you worship him, you will live in the kingdom of God in peace and rest forever. If you are hoping in something else, anything else on that day you will be responsible for your own sins and you will be cast into a place of outer darkness the bible calls it there's a common misconception that there are two kingdoms and they somehow vie against each other one is the kingdom of God, one is the kingdom of darkness. This common misconception goes that they're both being led by two powerful rulers. That's not actually true. God's kingdom is led by a mighty, powerful, gracious Christ. And here's the thing about the kingdom of God, all of its subjects... All the subjects of the kingdom of God joyfully agree that Jesus is king. 
But you see the people who don't plead the blood of Christ, who are in darkness, we would also just call it hell, they don't line up. This is a misconception. They do not line up and believe that Satan or the devil is God. Almost every single one of them are there because they believe that they're God. And so think about this for a moment. There aren't two kingdoms that have picked two different kings. There's one body that celebrates Jesus as king, and there is one place of unending torment because it's filled with people not united to anything, and their loyalty is only to themselves. Heaven is the most united place possible. Hell is the least. Be a citizen of heaven. And my intent is not to scare you any more than you should be scared. You should be a little bit scared. But I am serious about you knowing that what it is that you are uniting yourself to has eternal implications for you. I cannot overstate the importance of what you are united to. So have you been united to Christ? That only happens through faith. But if you're looking for ways to have your faith affirmed and strengthened, one of them is actually called out right here in this passage. It says that there's one body in verse 4, and then in verse 5 it says that there is one baptism. That's there because baptism is the symbolic way which Christians enter into the body of Christ. Now that does not mean, hear me very clearly, that does not mean you must be baptized to be saved. But biblically, being baptized is what people do once they have been saved. It affirms, it strengthens, it displays. It's a picture of a person's salvation. So throughout the history of the church, baptism has kind of swung like a, a pendulum between being overplayed and underplayed. There have been movements of Christians that have been confused and they believe that baptism is part of salvation. They still exist in the world today. They believe you must be baptized to be saved. That's wrong. There have been others who believed that this was purely a figure of speech that this was really a symbolic baptism and it was never meant to, do, to have anything to do with a literal or physical baptism whatsoever. The most biblically faithful approach is to affirm that it is not necessary to be water baptized to be saved, but people who have been saved should be baptized, literally, physically. If you have been saved and you have not, following your profession of faith in Christ, been immersed in water as a symbol that you have been buried in death and raised to life with Christ, I'm just telling you right now, as your pastor, I think you ought to do that. I think you ought to give a testimony. I think you ought to take that step of faith and obedience. And I think you ought to encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ by doing that. Baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. We should love to display our union with Christ. 
So now if you're really tracking along with this, we've been here for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. If you're really tracking along with this, you might say, this is a sermon series about culture and life, meaning in the local church, and everything that I've said up until this point about unity hasn't even mentioned the local church one time. If you are the astute listener, you will have noticed that. Very, very astute listening. I applaud you. I will in just a minute, I promise. But I feel like we've had to kind of prepare ourselves for that, and that's why I've done all of this. I wanted to show you that, that whatever unity we hope to have here, it's not rooted in this place. It's not even going to be rooted in our relationships with one another. Those things are good. Those things are right. It's good that we would be related to one another. It's good that we would come to this place together. But our unity here begins first with God, who is eternally united with, among himself. And he's made a way for us to be reunited with him after the fall. And then now he bestows the gift of that kind of unity based on those things within his body. So any real unity has to start with him. And then we see that out of the universal body of believers, he calls us to join together in local churches. And here too, in this local body, Paul says, be eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So how do we do that? How do we maintain unity here? Well, first, by remembering who God is. Triune, whole, perfect. Next, by admitting who we are. People who have distanced ourselves from God. And lastly, by embracing God's gift of grace. By uniting with Jesus in faith and joining a body of believers. It is biblical that you would align yourself with a local body of believers. There is no such thing as an itinerant Christian who just goes here a little bit and goes there a little bit. You should be aligned, known among, and regular with a local church. It says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So I think, here, here's, here's some math. I think if we can remember these things, when we're talking about, well, how do we maintain unity in the local church? If we can just remember these things, about 90% of what will threaten to divide us just doesn't stand a chance. If we can just come in here and go, God is great and unified. God has saved and reunited us to him through Jesus Christ. How bad could it possibly be? Let's just get together and let's praise him and let's love each other. I think 90% of the time that's just going to work out just fine if we come in here and believing and following the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He gave up his own rights and privileges, even his own life. And if we can just remember that, like 90% of the time, we're going to be just fine. So what do we do with the other 10? What do we do with the other 10 being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? We know what the unity of the Spirit is, the inseparable unity of God. And now we're after the unity that the cross of Christ brings to believers. Which is to say that we want to be united in such a way that even the worst things the world has to offer can't stand against us. Because the worst thing the world can bring was death. And it brought it to Christ. And he beat it on the cross. And so if that's the foundation of our unity, 
We're not after a kind of unity here that says, well, we like each other enough to kind of hang around a little bit, but if things get tough, we're going to bail. We're not after, you know, I, I really don't like her, but of course I'm not going to say that, I'm just going to never talk to her. In fact, if I see her coming, I'm just going to head in the other direction. We're certainly not after in the local church. I don't like that guy. I would never say it, but I'll tell everybody else when he's not there. What we must be as a church is a powerful coming together. And I say powerful because there is something that's going to be so countercultural about a group that has no earthly business being together, yet chooses to not just come together, but become a family together to love one another, to serve one another, and to bless one another. So we often refer to our church as a family. That's not just a, a, a clever word. It's what it's supposed to be. You don't get a new family because you're different from the one you already have. Lots of families are different. I can't tell you how many times I've been with my family and I'm sitting there and I'm listening, I'm going, I can't even believe that I share blood with these people. We have nothing in common. This is crazy town right now. So you might disagree with family. You might feel like you have very little in common with family. But think about family. When you disagree with family, when you feel like you don't have anything in common with family, when you wonder who, who these people are, even in those moments, even when you're sitting there at dinner, you don't go, all right. You don't stand up, walk out the door, walk across the street to your neighbor's house, go, hey, did you guys vote for who I voted for? Good. I'm sitting down. This is my new family. Please pass the green beans. You don't do that. When you're family, you stay together even when you find out that you are different. Even when you experience divisions, you stay together. So I can talk about staying together for a long time, but I just want to close this off with a real-world example because this has been more present in my mind past few months than at any other point in my life that I can remember. So this is a, a biblical example, or an example, I think, of, of what biblical unity looks like in the church. So the last year and a half have been a really hard time to be a pastor, elder in a church. It's been, a past year and a half has been hard for everybody, don't get me wrong. But leading a church has been a constant struggle for about 18 months now. I've been doing this for 16 years. I know guys who've been doing it for 40 plus years. And every single one of them agrees, every time we've ever talked about it, that they don't remember a time where there's ever been this much division or polarization in their churches like there has been over the past couple of years. Churches are getting ripped apart. And the reason is because people have been more eager to be right, to be aligned, and to get their way than they have been eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. That's just the truth. They care more about what they want 
than maintaining the spirit in the bond of peace. But here's the flip side. When it's been worked out, when people can trust the Lord, look at each other in this way, God is able to work powerfully in that. So here's how this has worked itself out in my life. I'll just tell you right now, moment of vulnerability, kind of pulling a curtain back, so to speak. Our elder team does not think the same way when it comes to masks, vaccines, or COVID in general. We have spent more time in meetings on this stuff than any of us would want to do in a dozen lifetimes in the last year or so. But God has entrusted these things to us. So we get in rooms together and we ask the Lord what he would have us do. And this could absolutely go another way. Because we've had discussions where everybody, everyone is passionate about what they want, what they believe, how they think the Lord would lead us. And sometimes, church, it's just very different. We think very differently about these things. It could tear us apart. But it hasn't. It hasn't. In fact, I am going to stand right here right now and tell you we are better for this. And here's why. In the midst of some significant disagreement, we have all been able to ask, am I eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Or in my flesh, do I want to get my way? We've been presented with a very real opportunity to do that. Let me just tell you how it's worked out for us as elders. Because we've had to do these things really routinely together. Here's what we do. We pray. We read the word of God. We humble ourselves. And we have often expressed our love for each other. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say we've had discussions. I mean, they've just gotten intense. We've had points. We really have. Where guys have kind of had to say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I felt like I crossed a line there. And hear me on that. That, that, hear me on this. It's not like totally ideal, but it happens. We're just people. And what's categorically wrong when that happens is when people are too proud to admit it. I will take a man who does some things wrong, but quickly repents over a man who does a little bit less wrong, but refuses to repent every day of the week. So as elders, we talk, we read scripture, we pray. And we tell each other often that we love each other. And I'm not embarrassed to, to tell you that. This is a group of men. We get together. And I don't mean we sort of kind of feel it. And I don't mean we kind of hint around it. I mean we get done with meetings. And the last thing we say in the meeting is, listen, I feel strongly about this. But I want you guys to know I love you. I love this church. And I love Christ way more than I love myself. So I'm advocating for this. There's nothing wrong with advocating for a position. But we walk out of this room, and guys believe and they know that what the group decides, we're all going to support, and no matter what, we're not going anywhere. We're brothers, we're friends, we're a team, and it's going to stay that way. It's been hard at times, but we're better for it. There's, there's, there's really nothing sweeter, there really isn't, than going through intensity with somebody, having some disagreement but literally and physically out loud saying, I love you. 
and I love you more than this. And folks, this is just my, this is just my heart being poured out. It's been hard, not because this, the circumstances have been hard. The elders have disagreed, but it's been good. It's been good on this stuff because we get a chance to say, I'm so eager to do this that I will lay myself down over this. I'll advocate, I'll passionately describe, but I will be eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. So what does it look like for us to do this? Same thing. If you want to do it, our elders are not perfect men, but their names are Mike Wilczek, Dave Mao, Dave Cantwell, Tim Sheik, and myself. Go to the four first because they're more godly than I am. Those are godly men who are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in this church. More than they love themselves. More than they want to be right. If you want to know how to do this, look at them. Again, not because they're perfect, but follow them as they follow Christ. And then look at these verses. Just a few things. Look at the verse right in front of you. You won't, verse 3, you won't do this with pride. You won't do it with anger. You will maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, through humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And, and so how? How do we humble ourselves? I'm going to bang out some stuff real quick. Three ways. Number one, submit yourself to the Word of God. If the Bible says it, it's right. If you think contrary to it, you're wrong. Next. Two. You genuinely believe you have much to learn from others. You genuinely believe you have much to learn from others. Three, you're willing to let go of what you want for the sake of others, even if it means you don't like it. Same thing for gentleness. Listen, back to our elder meetings. Guys share their minds and their hearts. But truthfully, even in the most contentious of meetings that we probably ever had, No one gets personal. No one gets cutting. Nobody bites. Nobody devours one another. Nobody belittles one another. We're careful with the words we choose. It's not wrong to disagree on things. There's lots to disagree on. But there's ways to disagree in gentleness. And there's ways to be a jerk. Ephesians 4.3. Don't be a jerk. You can have strong opinions. Patience. Patience. How do we be patient? Bottom line, peace takes time. Peace takes time and it takes work. You might have to sit in longer meetings. Our meetings, our elder meetings have been longer than we've, any of us have wanted to be because it takes time to come out of there and go, man, love you guys. We're going to do this. We're going to please the Spirit. We're going to follow the Spirit. Peace takes time. Longer meetings. More cups of coffee with people than you might want to drink. But it's time well spent. Finally, last thing, bearing with one another in love. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If we believe we're here for us first, if you believe you're here for yourself first, then this place will become exactly what we fear it will be. It will become something, I think maybe like a car sales lot, like a car dealership, where you are just bombarded by people who care only enough about you to want to sell you something, and if you're not going to buy something from them, have absolutely no interest in you. 
If you just think, I'm here for me first, this place is just going to be a retail store. But if you can look to love one another, then it becomes a shelter where people can come in out of the storm, be fed, feel safe, and find a place of rest. That's what unity can do. It can make a group of people that doesn't feel pressure, but feels like peace and security and rest and family and home. Thanks what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's pray. God, you have shared love, reunited through the grace of Christ, and drawn us together in this local church. May we be eager, may we lay it down to maintain unity, the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. That would be very, very good and pleasant. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.